Hi, friends. This is episode 49 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey everybody, thanks so much for joining us again for the Bible Lab. We are having so much fun in this series called Kingdom Tales, where we look at the parables of Christ to find out more and more about the character of God. Just want to remind you, make sure you go to our website, thebiblelab.com, and click on the PDF so that you can follow along with the study guide. Now, I'm excited that several new groups are starting up around the country and even around the world. If you are using the Bible Lab study guides for a Bible study group in your area, please connect with us because we want to connect people with you. We have brand new groups around. I'll be announcing them. Plus, we're making a brand new website page that will list the different groups around the nation, around the world. And you never know, there just might be a group close to you. And we also want to help let people know that you are doing it in their area. And if they're within driving distance, they can come join you for your own conversation. You can have fun just like we're having here in La Melinda. So without further ado, I want you to invite God's spirit in and to do what only he can do when he lets you know about his character. It's going to be a really fun one today as we take a look at a story you think you know, but by the end you'll realize God's stories just keep on giving and giving. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Take out your yes, no, and maybe cards. We're going to begin with the yes, no, and maybe section. Are you guys ready? All right, here we go. Number one, at least one of the neighbors on my street annoys me. Oh, my word. I don't know where you guys live, but the majority of you are annoyed. It looks like about 65% of you are annoyed by at least one neighbor in your street. It looks like about 30% of you say no and about 5% are saying maybe. So the majority of you are annoyed by someone on your street. All right. Number two, there is something about me, my family, my pets, or my yard that annoys at least one of my neighbors. Ah, looks like the same people. Looks like exactly the same people. I see a few more maybes. Jack, I see your maybe, but Sharon raised a yes, so I think your maybe means yes. Number three, I am uncomfortable giving money to beggars. Ah, look at this. Yes, we live very close to San Bernardino, and I see many of you, you've just grown tired. The majority of you, 70% of you are saying yes, about 25% of you said no, and about 5% of you said maybe. It's kind of challenging, isn't it? Challenging giving money to beggars. Number four, my financial status is about the same now as what I grew up with. Oh, look at this sea of no. Uh, the majority of you say no. Uh, it looks like about 15% of you are saying yes. And a maybe. <laughs> hmm. So the majority of you are not living the same. I didn't ask if it was more or less, and I, I won't, but... It's different. And last one, number five, 
My spiritual walk has been a fairly steady one, free from extreme swings. Ah, we are mixed here. This looks like about a 50-50 crowd. I see, well, I see about, I see about four maybes, and I see a love it card. Yes, awesome. <laughs> yes. We're going to talk about all of these today. Because we're going to take a look at probably one of the most popular parables that we have misinterpreted and misunderstood for generations. We're going to see some of the things that Jesus was trying to say, but once again, we're going to look at the language and we're going to see what has become lost in translation. What are we going to be able to see that's been lost? And to get us prepared, I want to ask a question. So get your comment and question cards ready. Because we've all walked past the statues of the Good Samaritan parable in the central lawn of campus. In fact, many of you raced past it to get here this morning. Have you ever noticed all of the hidden messages the artist included? What are some of the things that you found? I'm actually going to write them up here on our board. So what are some of the things that you have found that are hidden imagery in our statue of the Good Samaritan. Right over here. I need a microphone right over here. Thank you. Right down over here. Who's running the mic on this side? All right. Greg, start us out, buddy. I have heard that one of the figures that passed the Good Samaritan on the road resembled a very high-ranking official of Loma Linda University. Oh. So it resembled an actual person. Yes. I'm sure that was just coincidental, according to the artist. <laughs> Greg says, no, it wasn't. Okay, who is next? Who is next? Right here. Yes, Nancy. This is probably way off, but the right hand of the, of the person that was attacked looked like it had the emblem of what Jesus had in, in his hand, an injury. Ah, so there's a wound on that hand. Well, it's probably shaded, but you can read it either way. Okay, cool, probably shaded. Okay. Oops. Next, who was next? Up here. Yes, sir. <clears throat> the statue was originally of stone, and the Samaritan's head was knocked off. And why was that? Each person has their own opinion. Uh-huh. But I think... And what is the common opinion of that? Well, mine was that it was a prejudicial act. Ah, prejudicial... Uh, yeah, prejudicial act. Prejudice. And, and why were they prejudiced against the Samaritan? Because what do they have against Samaritan? Because a black person was the one who did the help. Ah, okay. We're going to take a look at that in just a second, okay? Right here, Dr. Horner. Uh, some teenagers were there, and they said, hey, that's a bro. That's a what? A bro. A bro, yes, and that has to do with the prejudice. We're going to get to that in a second. Bro, and they were talking about the Good, the good Samaritan. Okay, who was next? Back here. Go for it, Thad. 
This is the longest pause in Bible lab history. Yes, you are a man ahead of your time. Most people are only a couple minutes or 15 minutes ahead of the time. You, my friend, were one month ahead of your time <laughs> when you started sharing about this, and I shut you down because I wanted you to have this moment as we're focused on this parable. So share with us. And that. it was okay. So this morning I was working on waffles for you, so it's coming unrehearsed. Uh, I gave the wrong name when I started and got paused. I said Roger Churches. He was the head of the art department at La Sierra. Uh, the sculptor of the Good Samaritan is Alan Collins. He passed away recently. And poor Alan has done, had done a number of works all over the world. And I said that his art really evoked emotion because a number of them have been destroyed. I was working next door in the library and we came out one morning and the Good Samaritan's head had been cut off. At that time, the KKK was very active in Fontana. And if you go back to the local papers, they surmise that uh, it was the KKK that was just enraged that the Samaritan had been depicted as a black man. And so, in talking to Alan when he was doing this, especially in this community for the medical people, if you look at the body that uh, is supposed to remind us of Christ, his arm is broken. And yes. I remember Alan trying different postures to see which one would, most, would be most unnatural for an arm to lay in that position yeah. unless it had actually been broken. So a lot of times we say, oh, he got beat up and the robbers went on, they took his clothes, but he wanted it to depict that he was brutally beaten. Hmm. And so that was one of the things that he put in. I found out who the Samaritan is and I won't reveal it because in my research over the last month while I was paused, uh, <laughs> See, I helped you be better prepared. <laughs> oh, but I, I'm just not going to tell because I don't think Alan, in right. trying to get you to identify with the Samaritan, uh, whether or not you were a second class or a black person yeah. uh, citizen, uh, he didn't want that revealed. And so someone said, oh, that was my brother. And I said, you're kidding. So I called his brother and he said, well, actually, Alan took sketches of me when we were back at Andrews. And I asked him, what did you ever do with the sketches? And he says, have you walked across the campus? Go over and look. <laughs> and he said, so actually, I'm infused into the Samaritan. It's not a, he didn't pose for it. The regalia of the Levite, I will reveal, it was Norskoff Olson's regalia. <laughs> <laughs> because he wanted to really present academia. And so the, Samaritan, the Levite, as he was looking down, was how did this guy get into this position? What did he do to deserve this? If I stop and help him, are the robbers still nearby? Will they come after me? Those were some of the thoughts that Alan said yeah. while he was working on the sculpture. Yeah. I have a theory who the Pharisee is, or, or the priest, but I'm not going to tell that either, because he, <laughs> he was not a real popular teacher at La Sierra, and it looked, <laughs> it looked so much like him that it, we were pretty sure who had infused that one. <laughs> so, anyway, to oh, me, he you. looks like Alfred Hitchcock. A little but, bit, yeah. A little bit. 
Awesome. Thank you, Thad. So we've come up with a, a short list here. I want us to do a little photo tour, and those that listen to the audio podcast, we have many, uh, at, on our website. And if you want to go back to this, those of you who are here live, if you want to go back on the website next to the audio of this session, you will see a photo gallery, and you'll be able to go through the photo gallery on your own as you listen back to this session. But I want you to take a look at the scene of the Good Samaritan. Many of you recognize this, and now that you've heard some of the extra hidden uh, things mentioned about it, you do see several things that look a little bit out of place from the story. First thing is we want to take a look at who did the artist depict as a Samaritan? Now, one thing that many of you understand, those of you who are art lovers, you understand that what makes something art versus not art is art has to evoke emotion. And whether that emotion is positive or in some way negative, it is not art unless it evokes some sort of emotion. Many of you are sitting back there and saying, then how did the red square make it into the gallery? Well, that did evoke emotion. And so here we look at this statue, and one of the major features that you see is this is supposed to be a Samaritan person. This is something, someone from Middle Eastern heritage, and yet in this statuary here, this person is clearly African-American or black. All the features, the hair, the nose, the, the facial features are black. And you've heard some of the statements before. The reason why the artist did that is as he looked at us today in our culture and asked, who do we treat like the Jews treat the Samaritans? The plight of the black man came the closest. And so he made this statue to be someone of the black race. You also notice, uh, as Thad talked about, here's the arm bent back in a, in a broken way. You look at the face very much, looks like it could be the face of Christ. Even how the feet are together and pointed downward is reminiscent of Jesus on the cross and the position of his feet. You come to the Levite, the one standing closest to the Samaritan and the injured Jewish man. You notice what he's wearing, academic regalia, but not just any academic regalia. This isn't for bachelors. This isn't for masters. You can look very carefully and see this hat up here is only for the doctoral level. In fact, if you look on this arm, you see the three velvet stripes that are always on the sleeve of someone who is receiving their doctorate. And in fact, if you look at the back, it's very clear. When you see right here, this is academic regalia for a doctor. I'm going to come back to that in a second. And then we have the one that's farthest from, the one in the front. This represents the priest. What are some of the things that you notice other than it looks like Mrs. Butterworth? <laughs> that hat really looks like a bonnet. Some of the other things that I noticed... Why the bear belly? He's got a root beer belly here. And we can clearly see that he has a priest headgear on. We can clearly see that he has an outer robe. We can also see that he has a clerical collar right here. 
But other than the clerical collar, it looks like this is a Chippendale priest because he has no shirt on <laughs> underneath that. To me, and I don't know this for a fact, but to me as I've studied this statue, walked around it many times trying to see the imagery, um, to me, it shows that on the outside, he has an outer covering that represents priesthood, but on the inside, he's naked. Taking all of these into account, what do I see? I see the artist trying to explain what Jesus was trying to explain. As we look at the two individuals that are walking away here, what I see is Jesus saying, we cannot let our education stop us, and we cannot let our church stop us from being the neighbor that Christ called us to be. We can't let those happen. In this community, those are probably two of the most poignant statements that we can make. And so our question today is, as we apply what Christ was saying, what does this tell us about his character in this kingdom tale? And I invite you to open up scripture, or you can read along on the study guide here. I'm going to read the NIV version of Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. This goes like this. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The question is, who's my neighbor? In this parable, we tend to switch the characters and the metaphor here because we tend to see the neighbor as the man who needed help, don't we? Who's your neighbor? Who am I supposed to help? Well, there's a guy in need. I need to help my neighbor. But that's not what Jesus is talking about in this parable. What's he talking about? Who acted like a neighbor? 
Okay, the man who's injured isn't acting like anything but a dead man. Jesus isn't asking, how should that guy act? He's asking, which of these three, not four, which of these three acted like a neighbor? And the teacher of the law couldn't even bring himself to say the name Samaritan. It was distasteful to him. He was very upset because he was set up. The guy who typically was trying to trick Jesus, to nail Jesus with this statement. Jesus comes back and nails him and says, I'm only going to give you three options. Which one of these guys acted like a neighbor? So, who is your neighbor? According to Jesus, who is your neighbor? Now, something we have to understand as we look at the language here, the word for neighbor used in verses 27, 29, and 36 is plesion. It typically means companion, kinsman, or friend. It usually doesn't apply to just anyone on earth or the people living next door to you. In the Old Testament, it was very, very clear. It referred only to fellow Israelites. What does Jesus do in this story? He brings in an outsider. You need to understand something. You can go back and you can find this story, but it's not told by Jesus. This story existed before Jesus told it. I hope you're okay with that because he totally broke it. He totally broke it and it's never been put back together because this original story was titled The Good Jew. I'm serious. This story existed and Jesus took a story, much like you would take the, the three bears and he took Goldilocks and he made her the hero. She didn't mess up the house. She didn't eat the porridge. She didn't mess up the beds. No, she went in there and she decorated and she repainted and she fixed the faucet from leaking. She was a, a beautiful, wonderful person. And then the bears came in and the bears ate her. What horrible bears. Jesus does that with this story, and he does it with most of his parables. He actually takes existing fairy tales of their day or stories of their day, their, their morality tales, and he twists them, he breaks them, and he does that to this one here. He is so crass in this, in making the hero not be the Jew. And he makes it this, the absolutely detestable Samaritan, someone who is so dirty that if you touch that person and you die before you're able to do a ceremonial cleansing, God will not allow you in heaven because you touched a Samaritan. You're better off touching an unclean dog than touching a Samaritan. You have to go through less ceremonial, ceremonial cleansing if you touch a dog than if you touch a Samaritan. That was their viewpoint. So Jesus takes this question, who's my neighbor? Which to them meant only, how am I supposed to treat my fellow church members? And Jesus invites an unchurched person to the story. So who is your neighbor? Jesus replied to the lawyer's question with a story. And who does Jesus say is your neighbor? Hint, Look at verse 36 and 37. Who's Jesus say your neighbor? Who acted like the neighbor? Who's your neighbor? The merciful, the merciful one. In one stroke, Christ says membership means nothing. Behavior means everything. Now, this is kind of some tough territory because we're in a theological swing, aren't we? 
We're always running away from the theology of the generation before us. And the generation before us stressed what? Behavior. <laughs> You're right. And what is Jesus stressing here? Behavior. But we're still in luck because everyone else who was listening to Jesus tell the story were also thinking about behavior. They were just thinking about different behaviors. So, as you look at this, what do you think Jesus is trying to say through this parable? So get your question comment cards up. As you've looked at this, what message do you see Jesus is trying to tell us about the character of God? What does this story tell you? Comment or question cards. We'll get a microphone right to you. Right down here and right there. I need to. Awesome. We'll start here and then we'll go to Jennifer. I think, I think Christ is trying to tell us in parable that as Christians, anyone who has a need, we should help. Anyone. doesn't okay. matter who they are or where they're stationed from. Mm-hmm. Even if they think they're better than you? That's, that doesn't matter. Because you have to understand something. Put yourself in the mind of the Samaritan. Where did the man who got beat up and robbed, where did he come from and where was he going to? Where did he come from? Jerusalem. Where is he going to? Jericho. Jews who are walking from Jerusalem to Jericho are Jews. People who are walking from Jerusalem to Jericho are Jews. How do we know this? Those are the only people that would go there. You have no other reason to go back and forth other than you have to go to the temple. Many scholars look at this and say, there was a two-week time period that people would sign up for and they would work in the temple for two weeks and then they would go back home. And many, many, many Jews lived in Jericho. And so chances are this man was coming back from two weeks of service at the temple and while he was coming back, he was robbed and beaten nearly to death. So along comes a Samaritan. Samaritans are seen as less than dogs to Jews. A Samaritan comes up to a Jew that he doesn't know. He's unconscious. But that Jew may get very angry that the Samaritan touched him because if that Jew dies, he has no chance of going to heaven. You see the problem here? Of all the three that walk by, who has the greatest excuse not to touch a Jew? The Samaritan. What's the Samaritan do? He's a good Samaritan anyways. Exactly. Jennifer. The Samaritans were relatives way back, yes, right? Yes, they were. Of the Jews. Why did the Jews um, dislike them so much? That's a great question. Uh, probably some of your, uh, the people that annoy you the most and the people that you have determined that you will never spend any time with, if you have any choice in the matter, are people who are related to you. <laughs> right? We know them too well. Those are the people that have annoyed us so much that, I'm sorry, we have other plans. What they are, we'll let you know. <laughs> but you bring up a good point. Now, why is it um, that the Jews looked at the Samaritans so harshly? It was because the Samaritans had more than most that we read of in the book of Judges, but they had mingled in with their temple practices, the pagan worship, and they had basically created their own style of worship, which was a mesh between pagan and Yahweh worship. And because of that, the neighbors around looked at that and said, that is so 
detestable to God. It's an abomination that you are all lost. And if any of us touch you, we're, we're connected to you. We're, we're lost too. You may be related, but you're a distant relative. And you're the one we point, to the ki- uh, point the kids to and say, if you go that way, this is what you become. And so, um, yeah, they were related from generations past, but they severed ties simply over um, this variance of worship practice, which in the Jewish mind is very understandable. Uh, Back here. I think the story illustrates something that I've come to believe recently is that a lot of things we do as part of our spiritual experience are focused on ourselves primarily. Hmm. And I've come to believe that much of our spiritual practices are actually religious narcissism and not true religion that Jesus would want us Hmm. to practice. And this story is a a really good illustration of how our religious experience, our focus on holiness, can be completely focused on ourselves and our own salvation and not worried about anyone else. I love that. Jay, that's so profound. You're, you're teaching next week, all right? Uh, over here, Sharon. All right, the, the first gentleman on the front row answered your question correctly. Mm-hmm. On did. Desire of Ages, page 503, our neighbor is every person who needs our help. Yes. Now, but it's, it's, we have to be really, really careful because once again, we're slipping into changing the metaphor. The person in this story who needs help was a Jew. But when Christ asked who was the neighbor in 36, verse 36, the answer is not the Jew. He's not the one that needed help. The neighbor, according to Christ's definition, was the Samaritan. Not the person needing help, but the person giving help. I would like to bring that down to us. I would too. You never know who needs your help. Absolutely. For example, this week, I went outside the doctor's office to wait for the bus to come and pick me up. And I was, there was another lady there. I said, may I sit by you? She says, oh, sure, a very lovely lady. And during that waiting time, she shared with me some pain in her life. And I proceeded to say things I know only God gave me the words to say to her. Hmm. And it brought tears and healing to her, and she thanked me so much. Hmm. You never know when you are being used by God to help somebody. And it's not necessarily in a big way that somebody else is going to see or report. Yeah. But you can minister to someone in a very small way. Exactly. And many of us have never known so many times that now we always know. God's not calling us to always look for a condescensional way for us to say, let me help you poor little person down here. I'm in, I'm in the position to help you. Let me condescend to you because your life would be miserable without me. I'm changing your life. God is not calling us to look for people who need help. He's calling us to be helpful. 
That's the difference of being someone who is a neighbor and someone who's a neighbor in need. We are called to be the neighbor who is always helpful, regardless of the very risky chances we take. What the Samaritan did was extremely risky. And what the Levite did not do was extremely risky. And what the priest did not do was extremely risky. Why? Because the Levite and the priest had rules that they couldn't touch a man if he was dead because then they would be ceremonially unclean. They wouldn't be able to go to the temple. There are certain things that they would not be able to do if they touch a man who's dead. How do you know if he's alive when he's beaten to that level? You have to touch him. The reality of the story is out of the three, only one was willing to risk it. Only one would take the risk. Over here. One of the things that I was going to mention was that Sometimes, in my experience, I've noticed that it's family who um, we push away, mm -hmm. and it's because we didn't choose them. <laughs> it's someone they came into our lives. But sometimes we allow our friends, who are the people we chose, yeah. to you know, annoy us, or we tend to work on that relationship because we chose them. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a great example of just you know, putting away our, our, who we are and accept people and, and just be good. Yeah. I can start. Interesting. Over here. Uh, one, one other thing that uh, I think the lesson is telling me is that um, attitude is important. Yes. What attitude I bring to a situation will at least lead me into some kind of action mm -hmm. that maybe I might not even be thinking about. Mm -hmm. So my attitude, I find Jesus trying to tell the, uh, the, the, the wonderful lawyer, examine your attitude. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. We have focused on one word so far. We're going to go to two more words in just a moment. We focused on the word neighbor, and we see that Christ is saying, a neighbor is not someone you help. A neighbor is someone you are. And as a neighbor, you give help. So we've talked about neighbor. Our challenge is the how-to, and you just brought that up. How do we do that? It's within our attitude. And Christ unpacks this with two words that we just read right past. Because we read, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor. But there's two more words. What does it mean as yourself? And we're going to get there. But you are right on the right track because we have to go beyond just simply saying it's my responsibility to be helpful as a neighbor. How do you change your attitude to love your neighbor as yourself? What does that mean? What was Christ saying there? So we're going to come back to that after a couple more comments. Yes, Pastor. Oh, yes. I think that uh, I think most of us uh, identify with a Samaritan. We try to because he's we the hero. To. He's a hero. Yes. Who, who, you know, who are you going to be a, you know, a neighbor to? Yeah. But in the story, based on what Jesus said, really, maybe we're the wounded man. Yeah. And who, who do we receive help from? Hmm. Who are we willing to put our pride aside to accept uh, help when we don't think we need it or, yeah. you know, we're just too proud to accept it? So. Yeah. Absolutely. I love it. Mike. 
In fact, I was going to say the exact same thing. To me, the question is, who is my neighbor? That's inferring that I'm the half-dead Jew that's laying on the ground. Mm -hmm. And all three of these people are my neighbor. Yeah. And some neighbors are going to going to help and some aren't and we need to understand who they are yeah exactly can i take that one step farther sure like okay jesus tells the story in answer to what question what must i do to have eternal life what must i do jesus tells the story in answer to that we're getting caught over in the neighbor which i think is important because it's a very major aspect, and we're going to get to as yourself in a moment. But we have to pause and ask the question. Okay, Jesus is responding to a very real question with this story. They're asking Jesus because they want to know his perspective of the character of God. What type, you say you're the Son of God, you say you're the Messiah, what kind of God are you? And Jesus responds with this story. So the question is, who is Christ in this parallel? Who is Christ in the story? We're a little confused because in the statue, we have him as the injured man. But think about this. Christ is asked, what must I do? Christ responds, let me tell you the character of God. What would Jesus do? Who is Jesus a parallel of in the story. The Samaritan. This story parallels his life because there are not only a growing number of Jews who are beginning to believe in him, but there's also a larger group of people who are beginning to believe that he is not who he says he is and that he is becoming untouchable. He is a heretic. He is incorrect. He's not part of us. The parallel in this story from Jesus' perspective, if Jesus were to put himself in the story, he is the Samaritan. Because the Levites and the priests are walking by, afraid to take risks. And what is Jesus doing? He's taking all the risks. He's breaking the Sabbath. He's healing people that they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're closed on Sabbath. You can't do that. Harvesting grain. He's not washing his hands. He's eating at tax collectors' homes. He's becoming unclean with how he's eating and touching and embracing and slapping on the back people who are unclean. He doesn't wash and then he eats. The unclean person in their minds is Jesus. Jesus parallels the Samaritan in the story. So when you read it that way, you ask, so what is God trying to reveal about his character? Is that what the people are seeing as unclean and detestable? They're seeing that in him. That's the reason why he's trying to be tricked with a question. He's not being asked a legitimate question that the guy says, okay, great, I'm going to go do that. No. He's trying to find where is the, the little hole in the armor that he can get through and prove that Jesus is untouchable. And Jesus says, yeah, I am. And I'm calling you to be the same. Uh, someone that hasn't spoken yet back here, and then we'll come down. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think one lesson is also in this is that we need to be careful uh, who we dislike and how we 
uh, treat people because the ones that we look down on could be the good Samaritan that help us out. Absolutely. And then we eat humble crow mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. We, we tend to favor the insiders. God consistently favored the outsiders. The only announcement ever given about the Christ's birth was given to people who couldn't go to church, the shepherds. The only people he gave a sign to, the magi, he gave a sign using pagan astrology. He's the God of the outsiders. He's not the God of the insiders. He's extremely uncomfortable with church people. Over here. So as they recited the, uh, one of the greatest commandments, love your neighbor as yourself, and we established that the neighbor is the helper, why aren't the other characters addressed as like, um, the people who aren't playing the role as being a uh, good Samaritan or good Christian or the broken and beaten man? It's a great question. It's a great question, and that's the beauty of parables. It's because it allows us today to continue to dig in and to see where am I and who am I surrounded by in this picture? Now, if we can, we need to step forward. We've got about seven minutes before we need to end because I'm preaching in the big house today, and I don't think I can be late for that. <laughs> so if you'll humor me, let's move ahead to what does it mean as yourself because this will give us the basis of our methodology. How do we do that? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? This man was quoting when he said this response to Jesus. He was actually quoting the Old Testament. And this whole area of and love your neighbor as yourself was actually part of Luke 19 and verse 18. Hebrew word is kamoka. The word translated literal means someone who is similar to you. This is not a comparison of two kinds of love. It's the similarities of two people. So if we were to translate this today the most literally that we possibly could, we would say, and love your neighbor because they are the same as you. In other words, instead of looking at your neighbor and saying, oh, Lord, how am I going to love that guy? You look at that guy and you say, here's how I'm going to love him. What things do we have in common? Okay, we're both human. That's a start. Both have two arms, two legs, two eyes, two nose. No, just one nose. Okay, so we go through those characteristics. And then we go through, is there something else similar? We both want a nice neighborhood. I understand he wants quiet, or I understand they want this, or I understand they want to paint their house purple. I understand those things. But what is similar? Because the moment you see someone as similar to you, now there's a connection. As long as you look at all the dissimilarities between you and the other person, it allows you a gripe and a complaint to say, they are this, and you point to the differences. What they understood, what God gave them in Leviticus 19 verse 18 was a system of taking that that very high pressure of angst and lowering it with a valve of similarity. Look at the person with whom you have a difference and say, but how are we the same? Because once I start doing that, I love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, and mind. And as I look at my neighbor, I can love my neighbor as long as I'm looking at how we are similar. 
The moment I start looking at what is the difference that's causing me angst and anger, I'm just going to keep boiling up this anger. Take a break and love your neighbor because they are you, is what Scripture says. Now, I want you to take a look at the context here, Luke 19, verse 9 to 18. And what I want you to do is, as we read through this, I want you to underline or circle, whatever you're comfortable with, the concrete actions of one who loves someone as themselves. So I'm going to read through it. You underline and circle as we go. When you, and this is what they were called to do, and this is what the Levitical understanding of loving someone as yourself entails. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your field. And do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of, bra- of grapes from the vines. And do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not deceive or cheat one another. Do not bring shame on the name of your God by using it to swear falsely. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not make your hired workers wait until the next day to receive their pay. Can I hear an amen? Do not insult the deaf or cause the blind to stumble. You must fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. Do not spread slanderous gossip among your people. Do not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is threatened. I am the Lord. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Do not, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The question we need to leave with is, so what's it say about the character of God? How is this different from how we typically live? Who has a comment? Back here, I've got one in the back here. I've got one right here. Yes, ma'am. Um, our respite worker that sits with Logan every Sabbath morning so we can go to church, her name is Joy. Hmm. And she's been our, uh, our friend slash worker for, I don't know, eight years or so. She is a self-professed uh, Jesus hippie. She dresses like a hippie, even, and um, she is the most open person I've ever met. I think if it's true that we have a gem on our crown for each person that we brought to Jesus, her crown is going to be like 20 feet high. (laughs) Um, She will go up and hug a homeless person. Hmm. She feeds, she goes to a park and makes peanut butter sandwiches Hmm. for for homeless people. Hmm. Um, She's very, uh, she made us very uncomfortable at first because she is so, like, not Adventist, (laughs) you know? Because Adventists (laughs) sit like this, and we sit in church. We don't jump up and sing and praise God with our hands and our drums and everything. We're very in-control people. Well, we are, yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, she goes to the beach and, and bangs on a drum, and people come over and like, why are you banging on the drum? Well, let me tell you about my Jesus. Wow. And she has had prayer and changed so many lives. Hmm. Um, and just 
to, to flip the story yesterday, she, she sells at flea markets. She's not a wealthy woman. And um, yesterday she sold at a flea market and she said, you know, it was a really good day. I didn't really make any money, but um, there was this family that was trying to sell stuff next to me and, and I bought a, a game for the kids and they were really good kids and I made a little tent for them. And, and, then, and then at the end of the day we had prayer and, and they learned about Jesus and as she's packing up her van, a homeless guy is walking by and he has a, a bag of cookies and she just kind of, you know, kind of off the cuff says, oh man, I'm so hungry. Can I have a bite? And he hands her his cookies. <laughs> and our first response at home was like, oh, that's such a joy thing. How could she just ask a homeless guy for, for cookies? <laughs> for food. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a beautiful thing because then they end up talking yeah. and she does her thing. And, and yeah. I don't think it's her thing. I think it's just her way. Yeah. And she... She is a Samaritan, I think, in yeah. so many levels. Yeah. Um, anyway, she's, she's joy. Absolutely. I love that. Back here. Who's in the back row? Someone has. Oh. Okay. Yeah. We'll, Hello. We'll, okay. we'll go here first and then, and then there. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, this uh, parable reminds me of Proverbs 3.27. Uh, it says that do not withhold uh, to do good to those who deserve it yeah. when it is within your power to do it. Yeah. So who among us here who are sitting doesn't feel like they have any power at all mm -hmm. to do good to those who are in need? Excellent point. Back here. Uh, yeah. Hello. Hello. Okay. Um, i just concerned about what Jesus is, you know, trying to tell us through all this is don't let religion to be in between you hmm. and the other people. Yeah. Because we tend to sometimes to be so involved into don't do this, don't do that, the don'ts, hmm. than the things that we should be doing. And uh, that's why he wants us to be like him, like he is a person that is compassionate about other people through the way of living. So religion is something we create to, to please God, but relationship is what we should have between him and others. So I think that's, that's the, the most important message I, message I get from him because I think he wants us to love one another as he loved us. I love it, love it, yes. Second to last comment. I think there's an element that thickens this plot even deeper, which I know we don't have time to go into today, but when you say, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself, mm -hmm. what if you don't love yourself? Ah, but that's not what it's asking you to do. It's asking you to look at your neighbor and see the similarities. And so when you see another neighbor who has low self-esteem, that's a similarity. When you see your neighbor who doesn't have it all together, that's a similarity. When you see your neighbor that is absolutely falling apart and you're falling apart, you can love your neighbor as yourself. If you see your neighbor does not love themselves and you don't love yourself, you can love your neighbor because you are similar to them. That's how God gets around the loophole is because he has us look for how are we the same.
So how do you love your neighbor if they don't, if they don't want to be loved? Oh, that's a great question. I'm so glad we're ending with this one. <laughs> this is the perfect question because you're applying this. Because as a people group, we always ask the question, so I loved you and then I gave you the pamphlet. How come you're not coming with me to church? We tend in our religious relationships to only view love as transactional. I am loving you because God called me to so I could call you into the church and then you can make some friends here and I can go make some more fish catching and bring more people in. The love that God calls us to, I call non-transactional. We are called to love and to be love. We're not called to love so that we get anything in return. In fact, true love, the love that God demonstrated for us as an example was to show us that we are called to love when we will be taken advantage of, when they will take your money and run, when they will totally disrespect you and not reciprocate, and now you need some help, and tough luck. Greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends. But Jesus also went into this. Um, so what good is it if you just love your friends? Even the pagans do that. Love those who persecute you. Love those who hate you. Love those that do all kinds of vile things against you. We're called to love knowing that we are paying a price that will never, ever come back to us from those individuals. So loving your neighbor as yourself requires us to take a look at how we are loving and ask the question, am I only doing this so I'll get something back? Because if you are, you don't need God for that. But if you truly love God and you truly want to be a neighbor, God is calling us this week to go and to love and to never look back at what's coming back our way. Because guess what? You'll never run out of God's love. You'll never be able to give everything that you have away. Why? Because you're not giving away from yourself. You're giving from God. And the moment you give from God, he continues to restore you. In fact, he grows you. And what I've seen is God, God grows your capacity to store his love and to be able to give more and more and more until you live like this Lady Joy to where you're not looking for opportunities to be helpful. You are helpful. And that's what God has called us to be. Wow, isn't it amazing how we think we know these stories, but as we study them, as we talk about them, as we allow God to open them up for our minds, it really challenges us more and more and to go deeper and deeper. Now, just a reminder, just like I said at the beginning, if you would like to start a Bible lab study community in your area, I'd love to help you get started. Please go to our website, thebiblelab.com, and in the contact area on that page, write me a message and let me know that you would like to start a Bible lab in your community, and I will help you do everything possible to make that happen. And will also help to announce and to market what you are doing in your area to get all the people within driving distance to come to your Bible conversation. 
I love you guys so much, and I can't wait for you to come back for the next episode. So I'm praying for you and praying that God will continue to be with you between now and then. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 1030 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.